Good afternoon. This morning we looked at the God who has given us a message. It's a message that centers around His love for everyone. We looked at the idea that there are 8 billion people and God loves every one of them equally much. And He demonstrated that by the gift of His Son. His message is for the lost, that no matter how lost, as the Bible would describe it, they may find themselves to be that God wants them to be a part of His family. I think this afternoon we'll partner well with our lesson this morning because God's focus doesn't end at the waters of baptism, as was expressed well this morning. God loves and cares for everyone, and He wants no one to be lost on that last day, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. He demonstrates this, Jesus does, in the parables in Luke chapter 15. Jesus demonstrates what he tells Zacchaeus in Luke 19 and verse 10, that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. And so he's practicing what he preaches as he is among the tax collectors and the sinners. But we understand these tax collectors and sinners to actually be Jews. They're wayward Jews, apostate Jews. The tax collectors were considered traitors working for the Roman government. And the sinners are those irreligious Jews, those who perhaps were not practicing and had gone back into the greater world, maybe the Roman world. And so when Jesus tells those three parables, he is talking about people who are already in the household of God who have gone astray. And he gives us those three parables, those three illustrations of the sheep that leaves the fold, the one of a hundred. The coin that's lost among the ten and the son who willingly leaves home to illustrate God's love for a child of God who falls away. James has been called the practical epistle. And we just saw the practical ending as Travis read for us a moment ago in James chapter 5 verse 16 through 20. But I want us to look at verse 19 and 20 for a moment as we begin our study this afternoon. How he ends that very practical letter is by saying, Brethren, even if any one of you errs from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he that turns the sinner back from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover over a multitude of sins. In this power-packed conclusion, James talks about a matter that touches eternity. And as we look at it more closely, we see that this is a family matter. He says, My brethren... If any among you, you know, God has given every Christian the task of the Great Commission. We are to go and to teach people who are outside of Christ so that they may obey the gospel. But there is a ministry for the children of God that we have, that we're not exempted from, that deals with our brothers and sisters in Christ. To bring back those who have fallen away, those who are straying from the the family of God. It's a family matter. When it is an erring child of God who's not here, it's one of our own. But as we look further into that, we find that it's not only a family matter, but it's a faith matter. If any of you strays from the truth, there is objective eternal truth. And James is dealing with one who has proceeded down the wrong path without a clear sense of direction. And we know it's serious because of the implications of being in that position. There is truth and it can be departed from. We also see that it's a functional matter. You notice he says, If any among you err for the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns the sinner back, there's action. 
There's activity. And the idea here is of returning. And with this principle or this idea of returning is it's getting somebody back to the place that they used to be. And in this context where they used to be was safety and salvation and they need to return. Our function, our activity is to be involved in that. But we also see that it is a fateful matter. Man, it's huge. The implication of this because it's dealing with sin, it's dealing with uh, the error, it's dealing with spiritual death. We also find that this being the case, it can also be a fruitful matter. Isn't it wonderful that this entire letter dealing with so sober a subject ends on a high note? Because if we engage in this matter, if we are functionally involved in bringing back the erring, we cover sins and we save a soul from death. Now as we look at that particular text, it's an encouragement to us to realize how important this task is for us. As it is with one who has never obeyed the gospel, there is an encouragement that's involved when we reach out and we restore somebody who's been fallen away. It is a matter of redemption and restoration and relief. Peter says, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning, for it had been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn away from the holy commandment delivered unto them. And so God calls you and me. And I think in a Sunday afternoon crowd, you've eaten so much food, you're having a hard time staying awake, that you are the faithful. And this message is particularly relevant to you. That being the case, I want you to think about how real the problem is. Christian Chronicle did a study just a couple of years ago in which they examined the church and the numeric state of it from 1990 to 2015. And what they found was, this is pre-pandemic, that over 100,000 fewer members of the church were there in 2015 than there were in 1990. 7.8%. How do we explain that? Well, I think on one side of it, we can say that perhaps we're not baptizing as many people as we're losing members of the church to death. But I wonder how much of that number are brothers and sisters who once were faithful in their attendance and their involvement, who were once walking in the light, who now are no longer among us. Now, as we think about those statistics, those facts, and we look at James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20, perhaps there is somebody out there who would say, I hear you, I know it, but really, I just don't care very much. I don't think that there is a widespread lack of conviction when it comes to the wayward. I think it's the same principle that can keep us from reaching out to those who are not in the body of Christ. And that is that we lack information and direction more than we lack conviction and motivation. In other words, I think that there are a lot of us that might say, I would love to be involved in this, but practically speaking, how do I do it? Well, if we can find an inspired pattern, God's Word directing us on how to do this, maybe it will empower us and enable us to be involved. And I think we do have that. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Galatia. And at the end of that letter, and encouraging them to walk in spiritual lives, he he ends in Galatians 6, verse 1 through verse 5, by saying, My brethren, even if any one of you are overtaken in a trespass, 
You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If any man thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, this man deceives himself. But every man must look at his own work, and then he will have reason to boast with regard to himself alone and not with regard to another. For each one must bear their own load. For just a few minutes, I would like for us to walk through Paul's pattern for us and how we can tangibly work on bringing the fallen back to Christ. How does that happen? Let's look at a few things. Number one, if we're going to retrieve the fallen, what we have got to do is that we have got to strengthen our own spirituality. We see that in verse 1. We know this because he says, you who are spiritual. He wants a particular group of people involved in this ministry. But it brings two questions to mind. First of all, who are the spiritual? And second, how do I know how to qualify for being spiritual. Well, it's helpful that in the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul uses the word spirit 15 times. And so it's not by instinct or by feel. I have the Spirit's instructions. He is going to show me how it is that I live a spiritual life. And so as I walk through the text, let's see how he does so. He shows me how to live the spiritual life by bearing the fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, the Bible says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So when we look into our own lives, think about how powerful it is. If we are bearing the fruit of the Spirit and we have interaction with a fallen brother or sister in Christ... As they look at us and they see not only our love for God, but our love for one another. If they see the joy and the peace that characterizes our spiritual life. They see us being patient and kind and gentle and good and filled with self-control even as we reach out to them. Think on the other side of that, how, how hard it is for us to do that job effectively. If they don't see those qualities in us, either generally speaking, or in our interaction with them, if they don't feel a loving approach, if they don't see us possessed of self-control, perhaps they lose their temper and they lash out and we respond without restraint and self-control. Or they look into our lives and they don't see that temperance that shows that Christ is at work in our lives. And so where Paul says is, look into your own spiritual life and ask yourself, how am I doing? with the lust of the flesh. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21. It makes a difference not just for my sake, but also for the sake of the one that I need and God wants me to get back. But he also shows me how to walk by the Spirit. Do you notice that in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 25, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not be boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. And maybe these three particular, it's smart that this appears in the text right before Galatians 6 and verse 1 because these are three areas where we might struggle. Maybe I'm boasting of God's spiritual blessings or my own faithfulness in the face of somebody who is drowning in guilt and in doubt. Maybe they don't see love in my approach, but it seems harsh and even judgmental. Or maybe they look into my life and they see me challenging them. 
And they see me envying them. Maybe my response to them is out of a distorted sense of justice. And yet the Bible tells me as a faithful child of God that I need to live a life that's led by the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 15. Because we, by the Spirit of God, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. Ephesians, uh, rather Galatians 5 and verse 5. There's a man by the name of Albert Bront who was arraigned in an L.A. court a few years ago. And he was brought in on charges of filing false tax returns for himself and for two of his relatives. Now that by itself is not unusual. I hear that they adjudicate and prosecute about 600 cases of tax fraud every year. But what was remarkable was that Mr. Bront, who faced nine years in federal prison, wound up serving three years in prison, was arrested for doing the very thing that he was paid to do with regard to others, and that's to stop tax fraud. We might say that he wasn't morally qualified to do that job. Paul is not saying to us that we have got to be perfect and sinless. It's impossible. But he calls for us in this essential ministry to be those individuals who are spiritual. All right, so that's number one. Strengthen your own spirituality. And he's going to say more along those lines later. But the second thing he indicates to us is that if we're going to retrieve the fallen, we need to cultivate a spirit of gentleness. Now that word gentleness has been defined in different ways. The word gentle is a word that is set in contrast with roughness and harshness. But it also carries with it the idea that we don't have an overinflated sense of our own importance. So what Paul seems to be telling us is, is that we need to properly view ourselves. And when we properly view ourselves, we are going to properly reach out to those who are fallen. And the way that he tells us to do that is to cultivate a spirit of gentleness. If we are those who are led by the Spirit of God, that means that we are guided by the attitude and the mindset of God. And so we ask ourselves, how did God reach out to the fallen? Well, we don't see the Father, but we do see the Son. And when we look at Jesus, and Jesus is described for us in the the Gospels, in His life's account, what do we see? There's the words of Jesus himself with regard to himself. He says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I am meek and lowly, or I am gentle in heart. He says, you can see me and see my gentleness. But Matthew, when he sees Jesus coming into Jerusalem on Tuesday of the week that he died, and he crosses in that Kidron Valley and comes up uh, onto Mount Zion, the mount uh, uh, where Calvary is, He observes and thinks of Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, where the prophet speaks of the coming Messiah, and he himself in Matthew 21 and verse 5 says that he will be gentle, riding on the mount of a donkey. The thought when you saw Jesus was not this warlike king, but the king of peace and the king of salvation. All we have to do is look at Jesus as he interacts with different individuals. How do we see Jesus with the woman caught in the very act of adultery in John chapter 8? Do you see the gentleness with one who could not be more away from God? What about the Samaritan woman? A woman whose life was in complete destruction and disarray who comes to Jesus not even knowing that that's what she's doing and how does Jesus reach out to her? He corrects her where sin needs to be addressed but he's gentle. 
How about Zacchaeus, one of those hated tax collectors? In Luke 19 and verse 10, he says, Let me come to your house and have fellowship with you, eat with you. What about the rich young ruler? A man who's full of himself, somewhat arrogant as we see him in the scriptures. Even with him, Mark says that he, looking at the rich young ruler, loved him. When I see my Savior, my great example, and how he reached out to the lost, he was gentle. You know, what Paul is calling for in Galatians 6.1 may be something that's very easy for you to incorporate. Maybe you're more gentle in your nature. But maybe you are a, a, a faithful Christian. But if people were to describe you, they would not necessarily use the word gentle. They might say that you're harsh. Maybe you're a little rough around the edges. What do you do to engage in that ministry if you're still that way? You need to alter your temperament and your personality to do that. When you think about Paul, do you think about Paul being a gentle person? I don't know if that's the first image that comes to your mind. I mean, here's the guy who is willing in any situation to just throw it down. He preaches some pretty hard sermons. He really gets to the heart of some hard-hearted people, but, you know, those that needed his guidance and his instruction. How, how would you describe a man who goes to such great personal cost and expense to go out and to preach the gospel all over the world? Well, we see one example in Acts 17. He establishes the church at Thessalonica. And shortly thereafter, he has to leave just a couple of weeks later. And he's worried about those new Christians. And so he writes some two letters from Corinth just a few months later. And as he writes back to them, he says, You know what? You can remember what I was like among you. And he calls this and the Spirit moves him to write it down. Oh, rough Paul, how do you describe yourself? He says, do you remember, 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 7, that when we were among you, that we were tender like nursing mothers with their children. You know, that means a lot more to us now that we've become grandparents and we forgot how cute babies were. No offense to your babies, but there's something about it when it's your own babies and your baby's babies. And you think about how dependent they are, even as they grow so fast. Paul says, I was like a, a nursing mother, nurturing. But that's only half the picture. You go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11 and verse 12. He says, do you remember how we were? That we were in, in, encouraging and exhorting and we were imploring you even as a father does his own children so that you will walk in the way in his kingdom and his glory. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11 and verse 12. So here's the picture. Paul says, I was like a nursing mother and I was like a dad with his little children and trying to get you to walk in the way that's right. But then he turns around to them and he says, look, you need to also recall this is how you need to be with the erring among you. That's why he says to the leaders in that young church in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 15, he says, I want you to warn the unruly, but I want you to encourage the faint-hearted. And I want you to support the weak. And I want you to be patient with everybody, with each other, and with all men. And in that second letter, when he deals with church discipline, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6, verse 14, and verse 15, he says, We gave you instructions, and if somebody does not walk according to that, then you note that person and do not associate with them, and yet do not count them as an enemy, but admonish them as a brother. No matter if they have gone so far that they don't need to be in the fellowship of the church, what's your role? Just to forget about them and say, you remember when brother and sister so-and-so used to attend here at church? No, you continue to reach out to them. And encourage them. I don't know about you, but I always benefit more from somebody who handles me in a gentle and kind way. When I've done something wrong, 
than in a harsh or heavy-handed way. And that's Scripture. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 15 and verse 1. And I think about the old myth uh, or the fable of the, the sun and the north wind who got into a competition with one another as to who could cause the man to come out of his heavy overcoat first. And the north wind went first. And that wind blew hard and harsh and cold. And the more it blew, the more the man pulled that coat around himself and wouldn't let go. And then it was the sun's opportunity. And when the sun did its work, it just shed gentle beams of warmth. And it didn't take long at all before the man voluntarily pulled off the coat and even walked happily in the sunshine. I think what Paul is telling us here is that we need to surround that person who has fallen away with warmth so that they will be happily walking in the S-O-N, the sun. As we look at what Paul says here in Galatians chapter 6 in this pattern for how we retrieve the wayward, what he tells us is that we need to cultivate a spirit, a spirit of gentleness. As we continue to look at what he says there, what he says is, is that we need to approach the person with introspection. We need to look at ourselves as we reach out to someone else. The Apostle Paul does not say, you uh, consider yourself in, uh, in order that you don't do this. He says, so that you don't. The idea being that we're doing this with a, a certain sense of self-examination that helps us to be much more careful in how we approach somebody else. Now this word or this idea of restoring is a very rich word. So many of the words in the Greek language are used in a variety of ways. And so this word for restore was the word that was used literally of the fishermen in the Gospels when their nets broke, they couldn't hold fish anymore, and they mended them. It was also a medical word that the Greek doctors of the day used to talk about setting a fractured bone. So the idea is of somebody who is facing a harsh ordeal or a difficulty of circumstance. And what Paul says is, is that they are either emotionally or physically or financially or spiritually in such a state that they are out of sorts, they're broken, and they need to be mended. But what Paul says is, and it's interesting that it seems that each of these steps leads to the other, you start with your own spirituality. And if you'll do that, it will cause you to be uh, gentle in the way you approach the fallen one. But not only that, it will cause you to look within and to say, what needs in my life to be in, not necessarily put right, but in this approach to that other person, how would I want to be approached if I was in this situation? And so the Apostle Paul, as he reaches out to them, he says, I want you to look to yourselves I don't know about you, but isn't it easier, even when sermons are preached, sermons that in every occasion, or Bible classes that are taught, in every one of them there's personal application to be made. Isn't it tempting for us to think about the person out around us? Somebody else in the congregation? And boy, I'm sure glad they're here today so that they can hear this lesson. That's not what Paul says in Galatians 6.1. He says, look to yourself. That's why Jesus, I believe, teaches that uh, illustration of the moat in the beam. Because we can focus on the faults of others more than our own. And Paul says, if you're going to be effective in a, as a servant of mine in retrieving the fallen, I want you to just look within. And in that further humbleness, that will help you to reach out, to think, if I can project myself and put myself where they are, then 
how would I want to be approached? But then Paul doesn't leave it in the abstract at all. Not that this has been. But the next thing he would say for us to retrieve the fallen is that we need to provide ways of practical help. We need to find ways in which we can practically be involved. We get to Galatians 6 and verse 2 and the Apostle Paul says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That word burden in the literal sense refers to a large boulder or stone or weight that somebody had to carry for a long distance. It was something so hard and difficult that it was not legitimately thought that they could carry it alone. You think about what that might be if you're working around your house and there's some project and it's a two-man project because you just can't. Maybe you don't have enough hands, but maybe it is it's just too heavy. You can't do it without somebody else to help you lift it. That's what Paul's talking about here. Now, I don't know that Paul is only talking about spiritual burdens in verse 2. I don't think he is. I think he's talking about anything that's so heavy that we would not think that we could carry it alone. But can you see a connection? Can you see how some other kind of burden might become an impediment to somebody's faith? We look at new Christians. We look at those who are overcome. Maybe they're weak in faith and there's something else going on in their life. And it gets so big for them that that causes them to fall away from Christ. And now it does become a spiritual matter. Maybe it's a failing or troubled marriage. Or maybe it's a difficulty with one of their children Maybe it's financial hardship or reverses. Or maybe it's some kind of physical health concern. Or it could be that it's pressure from non-Christian friends or family who are persecuting them for their faith. Or maybe it's a sin problem. The psalmist says in Psalm 38 in verse 4, that my sin or iniquity has gone over my head like a heavy burden. They weigh too much for me. They're foul and they fester because of my folly. I am bowed down with my grief. I go mourning all the day. Do you see the picture? And if we could talk to a fallen brother and sister and they would know to turn to that passage, they might say, that's exactly how I feel. And so our question is, what can I do to practically help? What do you need? How can I fill in the gap and help you to to carry that spiritual boulder? Tangibly speaking, what can we do? Well, perhaps one of the things that we can do, the place to start is just to provide a listening ear, to be of support. It's incredible to think maybe if we find ourselves, as as we do with with family and loved ones and friends that have built a, a network that can help us, it's amazing how many people there are, even in the church context, that don't have anybody that they can talk to, to be a sounding board. And they need us to reach out to them and say, look, whatever it is you need to talk about, maybe they don't need counsel, maybe they just need our concentration, and they can hear and they can see for themselves as they talk to us exactly what's going wrong in their lives. That may be all it takes is to say, let's get together, let's just talk, and let's find out what's going on. I'm concerned about you. Just look, judgment-free zone, just talk to me. That may be what they need. Or it could be that what we can do is to maybe get with a few others, not in gossip, not to try to to, to figure out what's wrong with them, but to say, what can we do to organize some help for them? Maybe we're aware of the financial or, or the emotional burden. We already know that. and we just Maybe we can sit down together and say, what can we do to help them? 
Or maybe what we can do is be a bridge. We can connect them to an elder or a deacon or a preacher or somebody that might know exactly what they're going through. Or maybe they will allow us and we can reach out to them and say, let's look at some scriptures that might be helpful for you as you go through this. Or maybe we can volunteer to say, I'll go shoulder to shoulder with you. Do you need to sit down with the elders? Do you need to talk to them? I'll go with you. Or maybe if you, if you decide to go forward, I promise you I will go up with you so that you don't have to go alone. You see, so often they don't really know. And, and there is a difference between the burden in verse 2 and the load in verse 5. I'm not talking about becoming an enabler to somebody financially or emotionally who's trying to use us. But what we're talking about is something that's too heavy for a person to carry in the moment. If we're going to be involved in this very essential ministry, God cares about the erring. We want to be of practical help to them. But then we also need to act with humility. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul talks about the importance of humility. And he, he tells us that we need to look to ourselves, not to deceive ourselves by thinking that we're something when we're not. I don't know if you've gone through job interviews where they ask you questions and sometimes there's the trip questions, like what's your greatest strength? And maybe you just go on for several minutes. And then they follow up by saying what's your greatest weakness? I've had some interviews like that before. A man was asking an interview one time. He said, what is your greatest weakness? And he said, well, they say that I can be condescending, which means that I talk down to people. <laughs> well, yeah, he, he did have a problem with that, didn't he? So often we can come across, and in fact in the New Testament, there is a group of condescending people, the legalists. Every time we see them in Scripture, they seem to be looking down on others. It's the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. It's the Pharisee in the parable of the two praying men in the temple in Luke chapter 18. It's the men who are dogging Paul, those Jews, in Acts chapter 21, and it's some in the Galatian audience. And in every case, they look down on others. And the Apostle Paul, when he gets practical in the book of Romans, outside of saying live a transformed life, the first thing he says, I want to say this to you by the grace that's given to me, that none of you think more highly of himself than he ought to think. And of course, going along with that, Paul would say, Therefore, let him that thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. What's going to help me as I engage myself in this needed ministry is to make sure that I'm humble and don't look down on somebody because they find themselves in this situation where they've fallen away from God. Whether they have never been all that strong or if they were once strong and something came up in their life and they're not, we're going to act with humility. The last thing we need to realize is, if we're going to retrieve the fallen, there comes a point. Realize the limits of your efforts. Sometimes you can say just the right words. You can pray about it. You can be there for people. You can do everything scripturally speaking right. And no matter what you say, no matter what you do, no matter how your attitude is, you can't penetrate their sin-hardened heart. We need to be aware of that and be ready for that. I have known some good and godly people who beat themselves up and feel guilty even though they have taken steps to try to retrieve the fallen and they still feel like they're inadequate and they've not done enough. 
When I look at Jesus and he walked three years with his apostles and one of those he was not able to persuade from walking in the darkness and turning away from him, I realize that there comes a point where each of us, in verse 5, must bear our own load. Each one of us has our own stuff that we've got to carry. We're not to carry that for the fallen. We're to carry what they can't carry in the moment. Realize you can go to a certain extent, but every one of us is individually accountable. We'll all stand to give an account of what we've done. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. I know we don't like that thought. Maybe this is the part of Paul's process that we like the least, that we can do everything, expend the energy and the time, and still have it come up short. We'll let God worry about that. He wants us worrying about what we can do with the fallen. There's a man by the name of Sadhu Singh who was converted from Hinduism to become a believer in Jesus. And he lived in the Himalayas uh, in Nepal, where it snows in that high mountainous region. On one particular occasion, he was walking through a path with a Buddhist monk. And the monk, who was more familiar with the journey, said, we've got to hurry up and get to the monastery before it's dark or we'll freeze to death. And as they're walking along and they get to a steep precipice, they hear the voice of a man crying from down below. And the, the monk, perhaps knowing Sadhu so well, says, Leave him there. God has brought him to this fate. Let him work it out for himself. And Sadhu said, No, God has brought me to this place. I cannot abandon him. And so the Buddhist monk continues on his way, trudging to the monastery. And Sadhu Singh goes down to the place in which the man has fallen. His leg has broken. And he puts him on his back and he begins the, the, the body-torturing climb back to the path. He is drenched with perspiration. And he begins to drudge that long way. The snow is deepening. And as he goes, he is just exerting himself to a sweat. It's just, he's just about ready to give up. And then he sees the lights of the pagoda, the monastery up ahead. And so he believes he's going to make it. But as he gets closer, he stumbles over an object on the path, and he nearly falls. He dusts off the snow from that object, and he finds that it's the Buddhist monk who has frozen to death on his walk alone. Years later, Sadhu Singh was asked, what is the greatest difficulty in life? And Sadhu Singh said, the greatest burden in life, or the difficulty in life, is having no burden to carry. When I think about what Paul is talking about in Galatians 5, or 6 rather, verse 1 through 5, I realize that I have my own burdens to carry. But I don't think that's what Sadhu's talking about because it wasn't himself he was taking to the end. It was this other individual. I don't want to go through this life without having engaged myself in retrieving the fallen. You know, we are going to offer a moment of invitation in just a moment or somebody who's not obeyed the gospel, or somebody who needs to be restored. But I want to leave us with a call. A call that I make to myself, and I make to you. It may not be in the 2023 directory. Maybe you need to go back a year, or two, or three. Call the office if you need an address, or a phone number. Every single one of us in this room, Knows not just one, but know multiple individuals who were once faithful members of the church, even the church here, 
and are no longer so. What does God want us to do about that? Paul makes it clear in Galatians 6. Don't leave them where they are. Don't treat them as an enemy. Plead with them like a brother. Treat them like a nursing mother with her children or like a father with his own children. I tell you, I need to do a better job of that. What difference will it make in this church if we will actively engage ourselves in that? Maybe some won't come back. But what if one does? How will heaven feel? Let's, let's find somebody this week. Send them a text, a letter. Call them. See if they'll meet you and visit with them. If any of you is overtaken in a fault, restore them. That's not said to us, I don't suppose, because we're all here at least in body in the building. And I believe also in spirit. But it is said of somebody that we know and love. If this invitation is for you, if you've not yet obeyed the gospel, Jeremy's going to sing a song to encourage us. You need to act on your faith. You need to repent and be baptized to have your sins washed away. What a wonderful end to a great day of fellowship together. If you're a child of God who's struggling and you need our prayers, let us help you carry that burden you may have determined that it's too big for you to carry by yourself alone. You don't have to. That's what we're here for. If this is your invitation, won't you come as we stand and sing?